Tonight's class is one of a few in a series um, and of looking at character studies, looking at virtuous women of the Bible. So to avoid jumping in without context, I'm going to spend the next 10 minutes or so looking at virtuous women in the Bible. So you probably want to open Proverbs chapter 31. As a commonly quoted reference or image, you're probably well aware of the background of the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31. The woman that is described more precious than jewels because of her virtues. If you throw this word around in everyday lives, according to Google, virtue, virtuous means having or showing high moral standards. But yet if we look at the Hebrew from Strong's, virtuous implies strength, power, or even worth. The ESV translates the phrase excellent wife, or the young literal translation, a woman of worth. There's many people in the Bible you could call virtuous. From Sarah, the wife of Abraham, to Deborah, the prophetess, Mary, the mother of Jesus. If you can't, we'll start in Proverbs chapter 31, and we'll start in verse 10. Hopefully, we will build an example of a character of a woman, which later we'll see in Abigail. Verse 10. Who can find a virtuous woman, for her price is far above rubies. A virtuous woman is invaluable. She cannot be priced, even with the most precious tangible currency of that day. Gems because her qualities and her or because of what her qualities and characteristics are worth. Especially to her husband, as we see in verse 11 and 12, that the heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that she shall have no need of spoil, and she will do him good all the days, and not evil all the days of her life. Without going through and reading the whole passage, of who the virtuous woman is and her attributes. We don't know for sure if this woman was based off a real person in real life, but the personification of the virtues of a godly person is what we have here. And it's through these virtues that make this woman relatable to us all, as we'll see in two minutes or so. And this virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, she's a wife, she's a mother, she's a leader, she cooks, she sews, she works, she teaches and she's prosperous for her family and her friends. But yeah, is, is this the blueprint that women, what they should be doing, how they should be acting? Well, obviously the biblical role of women in the Bible can sometimes be um, interpreted as either demeaning or very um, unequal, unequal in terms of gender, gender roles. But there's specific roles which women have been gifted by God, just as there are different ones for men. And each are generally, normally, best equipped for their roles which they're intended to fulfill. The virtuous woman is the same thing here. Um, the virtuous woman is at the same time, she takes responsibility for all her undertakings, but they can relate to the support and encouragement of others. And her husband and her family and acquaintances, and it's the role that women tend to be very good at. And it's through the support and encouragement, as we saw in verse 11, that husbands come to safely trust in their wives. And it's the same principle that Paul brings out in Ephesians 5, isn't it? Her husbands are to love their wives, and wives are to submit to their husband. But yet, if the husband doesn't love his wife, then it's hard for a woman to submit to her husband. But yet, both husband and wife are to submit one to another in the fear of God. And so by having this common interest uh, or intent towards another to submit one to another, you automatically place the, um, your spouse's needs above your own. 
And that's why you'll do each other good all the days of your life. Just continue reading in verse 13. She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She bringeth her food from afar. She riseth while it is yet night and giveth me to her household and a portion to her maidens. She considereth her field and buyeth it. With the fruit of her hands she planteth a vineyard. She girdeth her loins with strength and strengtheneth her arms. By now you can hear the type of woman this is. She does. She's a man of act. She's a woman of action. Sorry. You can see how she she seeketh, she worketh, she bringeth, she riseth, she giveth, she considereth, she buyeth, she planteth, she girdeth, she strengtheneth. These are all doing words. But yet, there's no idleness found in her. I don't know about you, but that sounds exhausting to me. Um, and I'm sure every woman would agree that. To do that, to stay up late, to get up in the night, to rise in the morning while constantly serving, organizing, giving and teaching, it's, it's, it's a big ask. But I don't think that Proverbs 31 is an intentional tick list for females to go through on a daily basis. More that it's the virtues and characteristics and attributes that not only women, but um, men and women of God should seek to do in their actions and do in their decisions. A godly person is one that, as we see in Proverbs 31, that provides for the needs of others, that's prosperous in their work, cares for their children, and ensures that everyone around them, that everyone around them sees for who she is. To use the phrase from our Lord, she is known by her fruits, and by your fruits you shall know them. And aren't they all attributes that our Lord teaches us to be? So then, to put the Virtuous women in ecclesial context, I suppose, we can see the application for everyone. She's busy, she's actively engaged in whatsoever she has to do. She works with what she has. Her outcome is greater than what it could be, i.e. she's productive. She works and is a good worker. She cares, specifically in Proverbs 31, for her children. Um, she is trusting and caring in relationships. She is reliable, she is motivated, and she is humble, but yet not vain. She is and can be, and should be, every one of us. To sit and think that the virtuous woman is not applicable to everyone is to miss the intent of the metaphor. We should be able to see a small reflection of her in our own lives, shouldn't we? And the opportunities we have day in, day, day, in, day out to be more like her, not just one day when I have kids, then I can be a virtuous person, or, but the opportunities today, while I'm at school, while I'm at uni, while I'm at work, and so we can show the characteristics, the integrity, the motivation, the honour in what I do now and in the relationships that I have with others. And so we can see that the, the virtuous woman is applicable to everyone. Verse 18 to 22. She perceiveth that her merchandise is good and her candle goeth not out by night. She layeth her hands to the spindle and her hands hold to the distaff. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor, yea, she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, and for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She maketh her co herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. The generosity of this woman, of the ecclesia, or of ourselves, should go far beyond the law of verse 20, as in, instructed in Deuteronomy 15, verse 7 and 8, if there be any among you a poor man 
of one thy brethren within thy, within thy gates, in thy land which Yahweh thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not harden thy heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother, but thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him, and shalt surely lend him sufficient for that which he wanteth. Again, it's the same teaching of our master, to freely give as ye have received. But see how she goes far above and beyond. Her family are clothed with scarlet, or as the margin says, double garments. Either way, she's either providing more expensive clothing or a, a supply of double. She goes completely above and beyond that which is necessary by making tapestries and clothes of silk and purple, going the extra mile for others. Likewise, should the generosity of our ecclesia and of ourselves be to one another, not necessarily in monetary terms, but in time and giving a thought, they can be quite big things to give. And so if you just cast your eye down the rest of the chapter per se, you see the variety of things she does, the diligence in her actions because of her attributes and her values of a godly woman. There's only one woman in scripture which is exactly called virtuous in our King James Version, which is Ruth, and that's in Ruth 3 verse 11, but she'll be considered in a fortnight's time. But tonight we want to look at Abigail. So after that crash course, as it were, the virtuous woman, we're going to look at the example of Abigail and see how, the virtuous, how Abigail is a virtuous woman. So if you come back to me to 1 Samuel chapter 25, we'll start by going through the background. Verse 1. Samuel, David's spiritual father in the faith, dies, and all the land of Israel is lamenting his death. As you can imagine, this was an emotionally unstable time in David's, in David's life. It's also strength he found in Samuel, the discussions of the service of the temple, the spiritual advice and the guidance that he provided. Both David and Samuel had been um, starting to put money and resources away for the house of God. As we find in First Chronicles, how the, all the spoils of battle they won, they dedicated to maintain the house of Yahweh. All that Samuel the seer and so on and so on had dedicated and whosoever did dedicated anything, it was under the hand of Shilamith and his brother. And what a contrast this is, as we have the man in verse 2, Nabal, man of Maon. So Nabal lives in Maon. David, as we know from our readings earlier this week, which funnily enough coincides with our chapters. Uh, chapter 23 and verse 24, we see that David hid from Saul as a fugitive on the run in Maon. And he remains in the area in the wilderness of Paran. But Saul is forced to give up the pursuit because the, the Philistines are invading. And so we come to Nabal, who lives in Maon in chapter 25. He, as it says, was a man in Maon whose possessions were in Carmel. I suppose that's um, like saying, I have a map in a little while. Um, that's like saying there's a man who lives in Adelaide and he has cattle in the Adelaide Hills. It's that, that kind of thing. So he's a wealthy, prominent, respected figure that implies high, loud, noble, or mighty. There's several contrasts in this chapter, as we'll go through a couple tonight. From verse 1 and 2, you immediately see Samuel, who is, on the one hand, a seer who wandered through, throughout Israel, visiting the school of the prophets, teaching the word of God. But yet, on the other hand, we have Nabal, a man of wealth, of comfort, a booming business and cattle, and his servants to his disposal. I think the proverb, uh, 
sums it up in Proverbs 13, verse 7, that there is a man that maketh himself rich, yet he hath nothing. And there is a man that maketh himself poor, yet hath he great riches. So in verse 4, we see it's the time of the shearing of the sheep. Just some idea of the context of the land. Here we've got Mayon, uh, circled in red and caramel, roughly a kilometre, kilometre and a half in between each other. Some whereabouts, Hebron's and Bethlehem circled in blue, with a map at the bottom. The wilderness of Paran, or Paran, is found just above the Sea of Aquaba, and obviously just above the map at the top we've got Carmel and Mayon, that's the one. So verse 4, we come back to the shearing of sheep, which means the shearing of sheep is the time of harvest. The time, as we, if you go back to the law, it's the time where you're meant to be joyful because of the harvest, like the feast of first fruits coming in, and it's the time of year of plenty. And so as we read, David asked for provisions of Nabal, and it should have been easy enough because at the time of plenty, his pantry would have been stocked. Before we consider the woman Abigail, I just want to go through Nabal's character to, d- to demonstrate the contrast in characters between Nabal and his wife, Abigail. And so when I sat down, the first question that kind of came to my mind was, how does this wise, beautiful woman get stuck with a fool like Nabal? I mean, he's an absolute fool, and she's a woman of wisdom. They're polar opposites. Nabal, you got fool, verse no verse 3 it says that Nabal was a churlish and evil man or as the ESV says harsh and badly behaved there is suggestion to think um, was this arranged marriage or Nabal's character changed I just want to throw out a few thoughts maybe there's reason to think that it could be an arranged marriage as was custom back then as we know Isaac and Rebecca or Joseph and Asenath the examples and it's, it's a possible thing and several Christian commentators you could say um, kind of go along this line but I'm more inclined to think that Nabal's character changed looking through the record of 1st Samuel 25 I mean it's more plausible that Abigail this wise woman she married a man who was full of potential but wealth changed all that you could say is of good family heritage as we find in verse 4 is at the house of Caleb so therefore he's of the tribe of Judah he had lots of wealth, lots of influence. He had so much going for him, you could say he had the bright career ahead of him. But that all means nothing, doesn't it? And Nabal had his problems. And in a quote, you could say, the love of money is the root of all evil. Psalm 57 verse, 52 verse 7 sorry, says, Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of riches and strengthened himself in wickedness. It's quite likely that the riches got to his head and became a fool, as we will go on to see tonight. Moreover, to kind of push this point, what parent of the right mind calls their kid Nabal or fool? I'm not sure anyone would. Uh, I just don't see it. However, it would make sense that Nabal was born with another name. But yet through the riches and the continual change of his character, he became nicknamed fool. I suppose it's like medieval times, you had the village idiot. Nabal was that man. He grew into that role, you could say. (laughs) So let's just spend two more minutes packing out Nabal's character and see how different it is to Abigail. Verse 3, we see that um, churlish and evil, ESV, badly behaved. 
Now, this man was not only badly behaved and harsh, but we find what is more like in 1 Samuel 25. If you look at verse 14, the Nabal's remarks to David's young men. He says them in anger as he railed upon them. As the margin says, um, that he flew upon them. He didn't just want to entertain the thought of giving out his possessions. He, he, was, he, he flipped just like that. He was angry. He had anger management problems. And we know this isn't a one-off because Nabal's young men at the end of verse 17, when they come to speak to Abigail, they say, is such a son of Belial that you cannot, that you cannot even speak to him. A son of Belial meaning kind of without profit, worthlessness, and by extension, destruction and wickedness, which is ironic seeing how much material wealth he had. He had nothing in character. Abigail was not blinded by this man, or she wasn't blinded by love for this man, because she also says in verse 25 that his name is Nabal and folly is with him. It's like saying his name's Brutus and he's a brute. You get the idea of a very self-centered, egotistical man. And without scripture saying it, but if you wanted the proof, verse 36 shows how he holds a feast. And presumably this is to celebrate the bumper harvest he's just bought in. And he ruled in star and didn't want to give any of that away. My bread, my water, my flesh. He's very egotistical and self-centered and selfish and possessive. And to cap this all off, he's an absolute drunkard. He only that only just exacerbates the hideous character of this foolish man. And what a contract, contrast this is to his wife, Abigail. Nabal fails to keep the command of Deuteronomy 15 verse 7 and 8 as we saw with a uh, virtuous woman to open thine hand wide unto the poor and lend him that which is sufficient. In the context of 1 Samuel 25, David and his men is that poor man. I mean, if you think about the context of David, he's got 600 men running around in the wilderness with him and he's got to see to their daily needs while fleeing Saul who's trying to slaughter him. All the while, at this current point in time, he's mourning the death of his father in the faith, Samuel. But yet the hardness of the, the heart of Nabal is so much so that he won't give a single thing. Just quickly, I found this kind of ironic. In Deuteronomy 15, you can turn there if you want, but I'll have it on the screen. If you keep reading in verse 9 to 11, kind of the echoes you get, um, if you keep Nabal in mind as we read along, which says in verse, starting at verse 9, Beware that there is not a thought in thine wicked heart, saying, The seventh year, the seventh release is at hand, and thine eye be evil against thy poor brother, and thou givest him naught, and he cry unto Yahweh against thee, and it be sin unto thee. Thou shalt surely give him, and thine heart shall not be grieved when thou givest unto him, because the thing that Yahweh thy God shall bless thee in all thy works, and all that puttest to thine hand. For the poor shall never cease out of thy land, Therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to the poor, and to the needy in thy land. It's very ironic that the wicked thought shall not enter into your heart. Nabal, when we meet him, the first thing we know about him is that he's wicked. Not only that, but it says your heart shall not be grieved when you give your gift, because everything you have is from God and not your own doing. But yet Nabal is holding on to his, his possessions, as you see when, he, um, when David's men come to him. In verse 11, therefore, the fatal end of Nabal is very fitting, isn't it? When in verse 37 of 1 Samuel 25, it says his heart dies within him and becomes as a stone. 
he didn't have a heart to give to those who are poor, that were needy, and therefore God struck his heart because he had nothing to give that God wanted to preserve his heart for. I found that a very hard-hitting message. Do we see our, our, our possessions and our wealth as gifts from God? And then are we happy to give those to brothers in need as all good gifts come from God and we give them to those who are in need? Because when Christ returns and we meet him at the judgment seat, he'll see into our hearts and we'll see what he wants to preserve forevermore. Or he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And our hearts will become a stone. It's certainly an attitude to think about. So we come to Abigail. A basic introduction. She, um, so with that dismal picture of Nabal, let's focus on Abigail, a far more positive character for the rest of the evening. Verse 3, we see that Nabal, his wife, she was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance. A woman of good understanding. Her, let's start by Abigail. Her, her name means my father's joy or a cause of joy. And she described a woman as a, of good understanding. ESV has of, of good discerning. She was a wise and prudent woman. It's interesting to note that this is the first time that a good woman of understanding that Hebrew word is used in the Bible. The next time it's used in first, is in 1 Chronicles 22, when David is charging Solomon to, um, to build the temple. He requests that Yahweh give thee wisdom and understanding and give thee charge concerning Israel that they may keep the law of Yahweh thy God. Solomon then goes on to become the wisest man on the planet at that time, if not since, since creation. So it's quite remarkable that this woman, Abigail, is on even a comparable level to Solomon. Then goes on to say that she is of natural, um, of natural beauty, of natural beauty, uh, sorry, of, of beautiful countenance, and that is a natural beauty. Because the same word is ironically, ironically used. I think it's the third, third time I said ironically. Anyway, um, it's used of David in 1 Samuel 16, how it says that he was ruddy and with all a beautiful countenance. And also Absalom's sister, Tamar, of course, is, she said, is to be very fair. Abigail is not only a woman of incredible wisdom, but a naturally strikingly beautiful one too. Before we go any further, I just want to consider what the record doesn't say, as it normally would when introducing characters. First of all, there's no lineage or anything mentioned, no parents, no mother, no father. The only speculation we could possibly have is that she's of the tribe of Judah, but that's only if she married within the tribe, because we know that Nabal was of the house of Caleb, and Caleb was of the tribe of Judah. And this would make sense, because later on in the chapter, when she comes to David, she knows he is the king. David also of the tribe of Judah. So that possibly would like, be more than likely that she is from the tribe of Judah. Um, in 1 Samuel 27 verse 3, you don't have to turn it up. You can if you want. But it says um, in, within the verse that Abigail, the Carmelitess, that would be applying, I would have thought that she grew up in Carmel. So she's familiar with the area and she potentially knew Nabal from a young age. However, we're not told any information of the history of Abigail or of her husband Nabal. They just appear in the record. So in terms of structure for the rest of the evening, I'm just going to go through the record of 1 Samuel 25 chronologically and pick out 
the character of Abigail and related to the virtuous woman, so hopefully you won't get too lost, just look chronologically. The record continues in, from verse 3 that David sends his young men, Nabal flies off the handle and tells them to go back to David who fails to consult God, or in the words of Deuteronomy 15, he fails to cry unto Yahweh against Nabal. And his men, he tells his men, right, get your swords, 400 of you, you're coming with me to slay this man, 200 of you, we're going to stay and guard the stuff. And meanwhile, a young man that works for Nabal hears what Nabal has done and goes to tell Abigail. That in itself says, speaks volumes of Abigail and her character. It shows that Nabal's affairs, which he probably well, he would have, with this reputation, dealt with foolishly, that his wife, Abigail, would have had to mop up after the wake of destruction that he leaves behind. I mean, where was Abigail when David's young men came and asked for provisions? You would have thought, being the woman of the house, she would be at the door to greet them, you could say. But likely, as, as I've mentioned, she was out in the field, sorting the harvest and the sheep shearing, organising it all, because her lazy drunk of a husband is still at home. And so, as we saw in Proverbs 31 verse 16, she considered her field, she buyeth it, with the fruit of her hands, she planteth a vineyard. A link of Abigail to the virtuous woman. And so coming to verse 18 in 1 Samuel chapter 25, it says, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves, two bottles of wine, five sheep ready dressed, and five measures of parched corn, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on asses. Again, this shows the generous spirit of Abigail. I mean, she was married to a very, very wealthy husband, and so they're in no short, especially in the time of harvest, time of sheep shearing. The panchi was certainly stocked. But Abigail sees and has the wisdom to understand the imminent danger, and she takes action. She's a woman of action, as we saw in Proverbs 31, a virtuous woman. She doeth, she doeth, she doeth. But let's step back for a minute and consider the scenario and the decision that Abigail was faced with and then the decision she made. At this point, she doesn't know the evil which will befall her household as the servant warns her. I don't imagine they would know, and I don't think there's anything anything in the record up to, verse 30, up to verse 19 sorry, that suggests she knew of David's reaction and his intentions to kill her husband. The fact is, in verse 26, she sees their meeting as providential, that Yahweh had withheld David from shedding blood. This leads me to think that she was going with the intention to try and win over some disgruntled men so that they keep being a wall to her shepherds in the field because obviously she would know the, um, the financial benefit that David's men are to her in the cattle. This leads me, um, but only when in verse 20, when she meets David, I reckon she realizes how bad it is and how bad it could have ended up for her household if she hadn't chosen to give the provisions to David's men. So then she would see, the hand of God in her life. If she hadn't decided to try and win over David's men, she wouldn't have met David in the way to prevent him from, from doing this great sin. And that leaves a very astute woman in Abigail's character. 
Verse 18 comes up with a lot of provisions. And I, just, I just want you to picture this. The amount that Abigail gives to kind of flesh out her generous spirits, as it would. It's quite a substantial amount. Even if this, what is on the screen, was to be given to the ten young men. It's quite, it's quite, quite a lot. And if it helps, imagine me giving this to you to divide everything by ten. First of all, I give you 20 loaves of bread and your arms are already full. Half a dress sheep carcass, 20 to 25 kilos, pretty heavy. Half a measure. Um, of wheat, uh, that measure word is a seer. A seer is approximately 36.5 kilos, uh, three times bigger than an ephah. So I'll be giving you 18.25 kilograms of grain. On top of that, 10 clusters of grapes, 20 cakes of figs. Uh, basically, the bottom line is that's far more than the original 10 young men probably would have taken, which shows the spirit of generosity that this woman, Abigail, had. But notice the two bottles of wine. This would not be enough to go around David's 600 men. It's more of the token gesture of goodwill towards David as, a, as opposed to an actual practical gift. After all, she knows what wine can do to someone. She has a drunk at home to prove it. Therefore, this shows the wisdom and discernment that Abigail holds. Again, from what we've just seen in the past few minutes, Various aspects of the virtuous woman in Abigail. She will do her husband good and not evil all the days of her life. Even though Nabal had dealt foolishly and David was come to slay, she prevented him. She is like merchant ships. She bringeth her food from afar. The, the donkeys, the asses, she laden with food. She stretches her hand out to the poor. Yea, she reaches forth her hands to the needy. She saw the application of Deuteronomy 15 to reach and give her hand to the poor. And she looketh well to the ways of her household, and eateth not the bread of idleness. She looked after the household, her servants trusted in her, and she did something about it. She wasn't idle. So then, further on the record, she comes down to the covert of the hill. Verse 20, she comes down to the covert of the hill, as we know, a ravine, and by chance, she would not know where David was coming from, seeing as on the map a few strings ago, she, he's coming from the wilderness of Paran, which is 20 k's or so, I think, off the record, off the scale on the map. And she doesn't know exactly which way he's coming, so she's provident, providentially praying to God that she will meet this man. Um, and then when she does meet him, she hastily bows herself to the ground, as is customary in those days when meeting someone of great importance. Like as uh, when Abraham met the angels, he bowed himself to the ground, or even in the presence of a king. She knew this man was the future king. This man was the Lord's anointed. You could argue, although I, I wouldn't say I agree, that she bowed her head for her, or she bowed and groveled, you could say, for her husband's life, as Joseph's brothers did when um, accused of being spies. But yet, as we'll go on to see, the amazing confession of her faith and exhortation to David would indicate she knows this is the king and that she is in the presence of Yahweh's anointed. Before we come to her speech in verse 24, I just want to go through the picture and the scene which, um, which I suppose was the very first picture on our, on our slide. That this lone woman was riding on a donkey, comes face to face with a band of 400 men armed to the teeth. Now these were no... no ordinary men. These weren't the ten young men which David sent originally. These were his hard, 
um, hardened, battled warriors. First Chronicles 12, verse 8 mentions the Gadites that separated themselves unto David in the hold to the wilderness, men of might. They were men fit for the battle. They could handle shield and buckler, whose faces were like the faces of lions. They were swift as rows upon the mountain. These were scary men. The son of Gad, they were captains of the host. The least of them was over a hundred, and the greatest of them was over a thousand. These are the men that went over, over the Jordan the first month when it, the banks had overflown. They put to flight all of them in the valleys, both in the east and the west. This was, this was some army that David was bringing. And so these 400 mighty warriors, and again in the readings previously this week, they're disgruntled and ready to fight because, and they endorsed David's decision to go slay this man. In the previous chapter, these men are restrained from killing Saul, who is the reason that they have to live in these caves. They're always on the run, always trying to survive. And before that, in chapter 23, David and his men deliver the city of Keilah from the Philistines. But then word gets to Saul that David is dwelling in Keilah. And so he, he uh, besieges the city, and so much so that the in inhabitants of Keilah become discomforted. And they want to um, deliver David and his men to Saul. So, but then, obviously, as we know, in this instance, David inquires of Yahweh what he should do. And he fled, leaving his, his men disgruntled. They just saved this city from the, from the Philistines, but yet they have to flee again. These mighty men have to flee from Saul, who they could probably easily take. So when David said to his men, get your swords, we're going to slay Nabal and his household, not a man questioned his decision. Or what friends were they to not give the wise counsel? It took the actions of one virtuous woman to carry out God's plan to prevent him from doing this great sin. And I suppose that's the double-edged lesson for us from Abigail's decision to have the courage to speak out, to question the decision of Israel's future king. Because faithful are the wounds of a friend, as David's men should have been. But on the other hand, we have the ability to act in faith of Abigail. Abigail pulls David from the fire, to use an expression from Jude. It's a responsibility of us all to help and encourage our brothers and sisters by keeping ourselves in the love of God, so that the mercy can be shown to one another, either by compassion, as Abigail did, or even by pulling out of the fire, as she did. And therefore we must pull each other out of the fiery grips of temptation and sin, because we're all motivated to keep our garments unspotted by the world. So we come back to 1st Samuel 25, this band of big, 400 big ruthless warriors all grind to a halt to this brave woman prostrate on the ground with her face towards the earth. Everyone stops to listen to this woman's words. If you look at a quick overview of um, Abigail's approach to David, throughout her words she refers to herself as thine handmaid. And she refers to David as my lord. And on the screen you can see all the occurrences. My lord being used 14 times and handmaid used 7 times, which including verse 41 over the page. This shows the humbleness and the contrite spirit of this woman and her position towards this man. And so we come to verse 24. Abigail falls down to David 
at his feet and says, Upon me, my Lord, upon me let this iniquity be. And let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak to thine audience and hear the words of thine handmaid. You see how she deflects the rage of Nabal and places the fault on herself. The words and the actions of her husband, she takes them as her responsibility. She apologizes for the fact she wasn't home when David's men came. She didn't see them. She was probably too, running, too, too busy running around doing um, the sheep shearing, organizing all that. But she doesn't give that excuse. She just meekly apologizes for the fact that she wasn't aware of this situation sooner and asks for the forgiveness as she does in verse 26. Now therefore, my Lord, as Yahweh liveth and as my soul liveth, seeing that Yahweh hath withholden thee from coming to shed blood. She could have stopped there. She could have handed over her provisions and parted her way, their ways and that would be that. She was probably preparing something to say while riding out to meet David and maybe something along the, the lines of verse 26 as we just read. But yet she goes to point out the real actions of David in what he's doing. Because she says that seeing hath Yahweh hath, because she says in verse 26, seeing that Yahweh hath withholden thee from coming to shed blood and from avenging thyself with thine own hand, now let thine enemies and they which seek evil to my Lord be as Nabal. She points out to David how vengeance is not done by your own actions, but it's Yahweh that goeth forth to fight our battles. You know, Abigail believes this because later in verse 31, she says, but when Yahweh hath dwelt well with my Lord, then remember thine handmaid. She knows that Yahweh delivers people out of their problems. Effectively saying that when God has fulfilled her plan for David to become king, then remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. That when God has dealt the, the issues in my life, remember me. And so she reminds David that who will be um, she reminds David who it will be that, who, sorry, she reminds David that whose will should prevail, and that is God's will, just as it has previously in David's life. And that's how our lives should be, to say in our prayers, not my will, but thy will be done, regardless of the perils that we face in our life, that God's will may be done through us in our lives. So verse 27 and 28 and now this blessing which thine handmaid hath brought unto my Lord, let it even be given unto the young men that follow my Lord. I pray thee, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid. For Yahweh will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord fighteth the battles of Yahweh, and evil hath not been found in thee all thy days. It's an intriguing phrase she uses. Yahweh will certainly make my Lord a sure house. The only other time it's previously been used is in 1 Samuel 25 and verse 35, when a man of God comes to Eli to reject Eli's household, among, and among his condemnation he gives, he says in verse 35, that I will raise me up a faithful priest, that shall do according, that shall do according to that which is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he will walk before mine anointed forever. How did this woman hear of this man of God's words? The man of God that spoke to Eli and then 
to work out that David is the initial fulfillment of this. I mean, she knows it won't be a David because it says that he shall walk before my anointed forever. I mean, you could quite strongly argue that Abigail was speaking the words of God that God put in her mouth, providentially speaking. But there is, well, this is my long, long, long shot point for the evening. Um, Abigail must have heard the words of Samuel. So Abigail and Samuel might have known each other. Or even if they didn't know each other, Abigail was in contact with the school of the prophets. Because you look at her scriptural knowledge and it's astounding what she knows for living in a house of a fool. And so I'm inclined to think she must have either known Samuel or at least been in contact with the school of the prophets. Samuel has just died. And Abigail reminds David of the vision that Samuel and David would have shared, specifically about the faithful priest, as we see from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35. But the next time sure house is used is to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God tells David he can prepare for a house, that thine house and thy kingdom shall be established, the same word, sure, forever before thee, and thy throne shall be established forever. Regardless of whether it was God's words put in Abigail's mouth, or she had heard of the man of God's words to Eli. She knew her scriptures. And I wonder if David was reminded of what in Second Samuel of her of his now wife, Abigail's words when they first met, to have echoes of their first meeting together of a sure house um, in Second Samuel. Because the whole point of Abigail's speech to David was for the prevention and the protection of his house, his throne and his future as king. If he were to kill Nabal, then he would regret his actions for the rest of his life. And this is what she's trying, trying to get David to see, the hypocrisy of his actions. Verse 29 of 1 Samuel 25, it says, Yes, a man is risen to pursue thee, that man being Saul, and to, and to seek thy soul. But the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life which Yahweh thy God and the souls of thy enemies of them shall he sling out at the middle of a sling. She knew the fame of David's victory, victory over Goliath. She, as it says in uh, um, the reference to the uh, sling out as the middle of a sling, an indication back to that. She would have heard the words of David in 1 Samuel 17 in David's victory to David which says, and all this assembly shall know that Yahweh saveth not with sword or spear, for the battle is Yahweh's and he will give it into your hands. And so David is caught red-handed here with a sword in his hand, ready to kill this man. But yet he's been shown that the battle is not won with swords or spears and that Yahweh delivers. And again, Abigail reminds David of this and that it's God who gives life and takes away again. Why then does David have the double standard that if he refute that in the previous chapter he refused to kill the Lord's anointed, but yet he's very happy to um, kill this foolish drunkard? After all, the similarities between Nabal and Saul are quite astounding, you could say. The comparisons of the chapters, even the way the passages are placed. You've got chapter 24, which is um, Saul chasing David. Then we've got chapter 25, which is... Um, David delivering Nabal, and then chapter 26, which is again Saul chasing David. And so 
it's almost this the, the way the scriptures um, are written that the natural comparison between these two men is astounding uh, just to pick one we don't have enough time to go through it but uh, the second point on the screen, who is the son of Jesse? That's the phrase that Nabal says, but it's also the phrase of contempt that Saul always uses towards David. And so we come to the end of Abigail's speech. It comes to pass when Yahweh shall have done to my Lord according to all that is good and has spoken concerning thee, and shall have pointed thee ruler over Israel that this shall be no grief unto thee, nor offence of thine heart unto my Lord, either that thou hast shed blood causeless, or that my Lord hath avenged himself. But when Yahweh hath dwelt well with my Lord, then remember thine handmaid. Don't regret the decisions you make, David. And regardless of what you do, God has blessed you. And remember me when God deals with the problems I have in my life and deliver me from them. Many faithful people in scriptures ask of this, to remember me. Jonathan to Saul, to remember him when he becomes king. Joseph to the butler, when he goes to Pharaoh. Samson as his final confession of faith. Hannah, to remember thine handmaid. Very interesting links between Hannah and Abigail. The use of thine handmaid. It would have been roughly at a similar time. So, I can't say for sure. That's, that's, that's a plausible thing, maybe. Hezekiah, remember him in his recovery. Nehemiah, Remember me, O God, for good. And the benefactor on the cross, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And so we come to the, the saying, or the, the speech of Abigail, the words she says, and how true is the proverb. A soft answer turneth away wrath. Again, we see the characters, characteristics of a virtuous woman in Abigail. She openeth her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. Favour is deceitful and beauty is vain. But the woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. And David just, just does that in verse 32. Blessed be Yahweh, God of Israel, which has sent thee to me this day. So later in the chapter of the page, David takes Abigail to be his wife. And she, and we saw, she still has the same attitude again in verse 42. Behold, let thine handmaid be thy servant that wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. She hasted again. She rode upon the ass to become David's wife. And then the, the record of Abigail, we don't know much more about her life, apart from a couple of instances. But at the end of this chapter, we're kind of left with two semi-obscure verses, verse 43 and verse 44. And again, I think this is another comparison or contrast which has been brought to our attention. Michal, Saul's daughter, and Abigail. Both women dwelt and potentially were brought up in very wealthy households. They both had servants to disposal and had very similar backgrounds. But yet we know from 1 Samuel 19 that Michal could never leave the pleasures and comforts of her palace and she didn't go with David on the run from her father. In fact, she lied to Saul, which further increased David's um, danger because it increased Saul's anger. But yet on the other hand, we have Abigail, who was happy to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. She left the wealth of home and the comfort that it brought and went to live in the caves with these men on the run, with no servants, no security of home. She was the virtue, she was the virtue of this woman, and she became a virtuous man's wife. 
We don't know much more about Abigail, as this is the only chapter that records the events in her life. But there's just one more thing I'd like to consider before we close and come to 2 Samuel chapter 3. 2 Samuel chapter 3 is a list of genealogies that David has of all his sons that is born, all, all six of them. And in verse 3, we have his second son, Chiliab, of Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. The margin there has Daniel, because that, that's what it's translated in the parallel record in 1 Chronicles chapter 2. However, Chiliab is far more fitting for what we've seen tonight. If you look at the meaning of Chiliab, you can see that on the screen, it means the restraint of his father. How fitting is that? This interaction between David and Abigail, memorialized forever in this child that they bear together. I kind of like to see this as kind of the romantic ending, as it were, for the love and devotion that David had together and only enriches the characteristic of Ab characters, characteristics of Abigail, as we saw this evening. A woman of virtue is Abigail, as seen in Proverbs 31, verse 28. Her children arise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and praiseth her. And so, come to our last slide, the lessons for us from Abigail. After looking at the character of Abigail, what, what can we take away that shines forth from her character. To use scripture, I suppose, Acts 17 verse 11, to receive the word with all readiness of mind and search the scriptures daily, whether these things were so. We saw how Abigail knew her scriptures inside out, whether that be through Samuel or the school of the prophets, and she knew David was the future king, and yet she had the presence of mind to pull up his shortcomings, and without the knowledge and faith that she had, she wouldn't have done what she did. First Corinthians 15, verse 58, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of our Lord. And it's our final hymn tonight. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman, she was always doing. She was, idleness was not found in her. We see tonight how... Abigail was a woman of action who acted in faith to meet the king of Israel and to prevent him from sinning. And then James chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of our Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receives the early latter rain. Be also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draws nigh. Abigail's plea to remember David when he comes into his kingdom. No matter the trials of this life, the perils we face, the problems we have, it'll all be gone away soon enough when our anointed, our future king of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ will become king and we will be found waiting patiently. And our hope and our prayer is that of Abigail's and of many faithful in the Bible to remember us when Jesus reigns on David's throne in Jerusalem. We pray we don't have to wait long. Amen.